I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jennifer Michael Hecht, is a poet and historian, teacher and public speaker, the author of several intellectually provocative books translated into many languages. Her bestseller, Doubt, A History, explores religious and philosophical doubt throughout the world and over the centuries. Her book, entitled Stay, focuses on the history of suicide and a secular argument against it. The End of the Soul, Scientific Modernity, Atheism, and Anthropology won Phi Beta Kappa's 2004 Ralph Waldo Emerson Award. The Happiness Myth brings a historical eye to modern wisdom about how to lead a good life. She has published in peer-reviewed journals, written articles for major newspapers and magazines, and appeared in numerous television and radio interviews. Her books of poetry, which include The Next Ancient World, Funny, and Who Said, have won accolades and major awards. Her most recent book, The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives, published in March 2023, is the subject of today's interview. So Jennifer, welcome to Delving In. Hi, thanks for having me. So first off, I want to thank you for The Wonder Paradox, a book that is not easy to categorize. It encompasses simultaneously a seminar in poetry appreciation, a self-help manual for deepening of one's contemplative life, and a compendium of secular pastoral advice for those who were raised without religion and for those who have lost the faith they might have grown up with. I love the title, both the main title, The Wonder Paradox, and the subtitle, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives, and applaud your project of helping doubters and skeptics to not allow their unbelief to stand in the way of creating secular rituals to enhance and demarcate a wide variety of significant experiences. I also appreciate the respect you show for religious practices that have honed these kinds of rituals and your recognition that many people can still tap into these whether or not they believe in their theological origins. You write, quote, so maybe some of us don't believe in the spirits that once seemed to be the electricity that lit up all the traditional rituals. Poetry then, available to all, is a sufficient source of power to light up ritual and guide us toward meaning. It's as if we have lamps but won't plug them in because our ancestors believed electricity was spirit-made. Having lost belief in spirits, we sit in the dark. There's no need. We have holidays and rituals crafted like tungsten and glass for glowing. We have poems that buzz with electric charge. Let's plug them in. So my first question then is, does it take a poet with a background in the history of science to write such a book? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe it does. It's interesting that my books had been all, uh, they were connected to me, but they were on a lot of different subjects. And this book is one that brings all the different backgrounds together. And it's very satisfying. My poetry really was mostly separate from my history. I would always include poetry because I'm a historian of science and also a cultural historian. So I'm really always looking at science on the more on, on the interaction with society and culture side, rather than looking deeply at the scientific rules, for instance. And yeah, so to actually have the poetry be at the forefront and have all the history around it and have it all working together has been really beautiful. And I'm wondering if you travel some distance in order to fully appreciate the religious rituals for themselves without 
needing to emphasize the atheism part, because I, I, I think your previous work seemed to be more of a defense of atheism and the history, the long history of atheism, and giving courage to people who were, let's say, separating themselves from religion that they might have grown up with. And with this book, it seems that you're embracing it all, both sides. That's right. Here's the thing. I, I don't believe in anything that isn't that you can't include in the natural world. Natural means real to me. Okay. So the natural world is real and I don't do anything with anything that you would call super or outside the natural. But part of the natural world is the human imagination. And when I first started, this book is very much a reaction to or a response to 25 years now of going around wherever I'm invited to give talks at secular houses of worship. Didn't realize there were so many of those all over the country, places where people gather to meet and either Unitarian or Reformed Jew, or there's lots of ways that people find to gather in somewhat religious, in a very religious setting and do somewhat religious things. And those places invited me over these many years. And of course, many universities, uh, mostly universities, probably in libraries, fly me around the country to talk about this stuff. And then I get to listen to the response. And what I hear is there's two sides of it. One side is that I'm just describing what people already do. This book isn't so much prescriptive. I'm not saying go do this, though I am because many people need that. But I'm first responding to all these people who I met who, for instance, did Christmas without believing in Jesus or did Hanukkah without believing in any kind of spiritual being at all. What were all these people up to? What were they doing? Why did it make sense for them? But more importantly, they told me they felt a little guilty about it. When, the, when people would come up to me and say, look, I celebrate this holiday, but I don't really believe it and I feel odd about it. Or for instance, one of the stories that people always love that's in the introduction to the book where the very first big doubt talk I gave, my, my big historical book of atheism is called Doubt. The first doubt talk I gave, this terrifically pregnant couple walks up to me at the table where I'm signing books and asks if they can ask a question. I'm waiting for something about atheist history, Tom Paine or something. And instead they say, they'd like to have a bris. Could they? And later my husband turns to me and says, the only thing missing from that conversation was Rebbe. They were asking me in this way that I was not prepared to be addressed at all. I was I was their age, maybe even a little younger, but I'm a historian. I tried to answer in historical terms and tell them that, in fact, the bris has been performed by people who don't believe and not performed by some Jews who did believe in the Hellenistic period, that these religions are there for us to interpret and that they can go ahead and have this bris and they because they were afraid that they'd be being hypocritical both to their religion that they used to believe in and that they still love and their family loves they didn't want to be hypocritical to the religion nor to what they really believed their rationalism and i told them it was okay that there was a beauty to life that they could tap into and this was one way i hadn't done deep thinking about this yet they were walking away when I called them back. Just I, I shouted after them, read some Whitman. I, I said, add some poetry, maybe some Whitman. Because I have been to many ceremonies that are secular. Uh, people don't believe. 
Um, and I've been to those that included poetry. And I've been to those that didn't. And there's, it's wonderful to have a moment where everybody has a kind of hush and listens closely, even if the words aren't that intense, but if the words are extraordinarily beautiful and make you feel like, for instance, if they're at a Brits or at any kind of baby ceremony, make you feel like the most beautiful thing in the world is to bring a child into this world and to raise them up and that it's going to be beautiful and worth it. It's nice to hear those things when you've got a, a new baby at home, especially the first baby. So it's, it's come around to me in many different ways that people are already doing some religious things without believing, and they need some counsel or some context. Context is what I can offer. And the context tends to offer counsel, and that's why I'm so uh, attached to it. But the other side of it is that I would go to these atheist conferences. Again, I'd be invited because they read doubt. And everybody was more scientistic than I. Everybody was so pro-science. I'm entirely pro-science, but because I'm not a scientist, but a historian of science, I can see how science changes over time, which means a lot of the science you're in at any given moment isn't right. It's going to be changed. It's going to be perfected. Now, that's not any reason to doubt science, but I don't stand on science. I stand on poetry. And so I started to try to share that perspective. And I found that in many cases, the people who came with the scientists, often the wives, but there were many men who came to me as well and said, I got brought along to this conference and I'm an atheist, but not quite the kind of atheism that I'm hearing here. But your, what you're talking about struck a chord. The idea that the humanities, you don't want to make art a religion. People have tried, people die. It's not a good idea. Don't make anything a religion. But in the place where religion was, art can fill a, a great many of the human needs and has. Art filled those needs before there was religion in many ways. Certainly science and art are very different from each other, obviously where science is trying to pin down truth as it's trying to squirm away, whereas poetry is really about meaning and, and association. And it's not the contradiction doesn't apply to poetry. It applies to science, but not to poetry. And just give a, a personal example. I, I'm uh, Jewish, and I'm not a particular believer in, in a personal God, but yet I sing some of the liturgy on the High Holidays, including the Unatana Tokev prayer, which is was popularized by Leonard Cohen, Who by Fire, Who by Water?, and the imagery is that God is sitting up there in heaven, writing you in, into the book of life or not. And you have to repent in order to take stock and repent in order to be written into the book of life. And who knows what kind of life you're going to get. And it's you, you could die in the coming year by fire, by water, by plague, you name it. I don't believe that literally. And yet I find it extremely powerful to think collectively, not just for myself, but for the whole community, who's going to, who's going to be here next year. And that's incredibly powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, if you don't believe and you happen to be part of a religion that prays in another language, you're lucky because you can really sing your heart out without, and that goes for you know the Latin liturgy to, for some people, but of course it, it goes for a lot of Jewish people because I too can feel happy singing along these songs. And, and, and of course I know which words are God. I, I went to a little Hebrew school, but it's, 
it it can be very beautiful to sing those old songs. There's no question. But the other thing you mentioned is the job, the work that Yom Kippur does. Most holidays in the American world are really, if you said, what's this holiday about? The answer is family, because we've drained a lot of meaning out of the other ones. If somebody is saying they're celebrating Lent, that they're actually doing a ritual thing. But for the most part, if you say Christmas or Hanukkah, we don't know. The idea that we can get some joy out of the holiday because we're thinking just about family is a great idea. But most holidays began with specific jobs. And you raised one of the specific jobs. There are holidays in most religions that try to get rid of shame so you can start again. And Yom Kippur is that kind of holiday. You're trying to, you're encouraged to apologize to anyone you may have hurt. And also, very importantly, to accept the apologies of people who you really still have a grudge against. And and we all have these tendencies. And that's why this holiday has lasted for millennia, because it feels really good to be able to leave it behind for a year. Of course, Christians have confession and sometimes I'm envious. It's a beautiful thing to be able to go in at any time you want and leave behind, and especially that idea of sharing with another human being. There's real beauty there. So that's what I do with the wonder paradox. I have each chapter is about something that religion used to do and how poetry can fill some of the losses. I'd like to read a quote by Rilke that you include in your book. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live with them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And it's a very beautiful kind of encapsulation of the beauty of doubt, which of course harkens back to your other book, but that using poetry for life rituals does not have to mean closure, but can mean an opening up. And that was a kind of a really interesting aspect of your book. You think of religious rituals as tidying up the meaning, but in, I think in, in your uh, rendering of, of using poetry for rituals, it, it does the opposite. It opens things up, opens up possibility and, and uh, alternate meanings. Yeah, I I like that a lot. Absolutely. Partially, uh, I'm inviting people to choose a poem for each of these needs or holidays and choose them in advance, especially if if you have a funeral poem, a poem that you've heard and you responded to with a certain kind of deep melancholy and understanding. If you were to put that poem aside and know that if you were to lose someone, maybe in a certain category, maybe you can't pre-choose Maybe you can't choose a poem for the loss of a certain parent or something, but the idea that you could have a poem set aside, knowing that's where you, what you might read at a funeral or what you might read to yourself privately. And as you say, the interpretations come along through life so that when you read these poems, if you read a poem once a year, it's going to mean something different in each of those years. It's extraordinary how great poetry hides different sides of itself until you're ready to see them. Yeah, it's interesting that you're recommending to have kind of poems in stock, personally chosen for ready for use in a particular situation. And then as you say, they get used more than once and they become a kind of 
attain a kind of holiness to them in a sense. And I wanted to ask you about the terms you coined, interfaithless and poetic sacred. So how did you come up with these and, and what do they mean? The interfaithless, you know, I was trying to come up with a positive term, most terms for people who believe in the natural and believe in the poetic are actually negative. We only hear atheist, not theist. We hear we hear unbelief, disbelief, irreligion. There aren't positive words that make it clear that we don't believe in anything other than these things, right? So I was looking for some way to do it. It's a little tricky because many years ago, the word naturalist was taken up by naked people. The word naturalist was meant nudist for a while there. And it was really a weird thing that you couldn't pick that up for a sort of positivist scientist uh, term. So that was tricky for a while. But many of the terms that I looked at that we use were negative. And in the end, I ended up with one that's a little negative too, because it's interfaithless, right? Non-faith. But I was looking for a new term for that reason, it just came to mind the interfaithless. And I laughed because I grew up at a time where interfaith was a really big movement. It's not right now because it, it was big for a historical reason. After World War II, many Americans were a little upset at the cost of the war. Right after, they didn't have the big historical perspective of just being proud that we did this thing of defeating Hitler. They were upset about the cost of the war and continuing costs because we were sending money to rebuild. The country decided to try to show that these religions, Judaism, Christian, and the two Christianities that were big in America, Catholicism and uh, Protestantism, all had the same God. You know how when you hear that Allah means God, but you don't really think Allah is the same guy as, well, that's how people used to feel about the different gods of Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism. It really took concerted work for several decades by the interfaithless people to get us to say, oh, it's the same God. And it's, so we're all praying to the same, to really see that these religions are deeply the same, um, that they come from the same place. So the interfaithless is a kind of a way of saying, look, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds. And I'm saying that we have something deeply in common if we all don't believe in the spiritual side, but we still want to do some of the behaviors that you could call religious. And so the interfaithless really emphasizes the inter, the idea that I could be throwing bread to the ducks at Rosh Hashanah and someone else doing whatever holiday they're doing. And there's something between us a feeling of we're all here doing this, or the many Christians who are having beautiful Christmas Eves with their family, perhaps going to a church and hearing music, they sometimes feel a little conflicted about it. And this whole book is about the idea that if you bring your intention of the poetic to that experience, and you realize that there are other interfaithless people bringing their heart and their poetic imagination to the experience as well, you don't feel as alone. Maybe you're the only atheist in your little group, but you can know that there are others around who are who are doing the same thing. And it really feels more beautiful when you're aware of that. So I want to give just a quick summary of, of all the different experiences that you uh, touch upon in your book. There's a vast array of, of human experiences first practices which encompass decision-making, eating, gratitude, sleep, and meditation, 
Then holidays, whether focused on happiness, fear, shame, and guilt, rest and relaxation, or the need to connect with nature. Then life celebrations, birth, coming of age, marriage, and death. And finally, a section on emergencies and wisdom questions, despair, political outcomes, inspirational codes for living, how to discuss mortality with children, and the secular grounding of morality. Wow, you've really mm -hmm. covered an awesome number of bases. It's incredibly ambitious. Yeah, I guess it was, but it, I actually had to trim it down from many others because uh, these are the questions people have asked me or the comments people have given me over the almost 25 years uh, since I started with doubt. And so there are questions that many of them had, a, I made them as wide and as general as possible, but there were some that were so specific that came up over and over. Many people told me they had specific things that they just wished they could have access to, like being able to tell children that there's a heaven. And that's why that one chapter, talking about death with children, it has a, it's so specific because people kept asking me about it. And the despair one as well, shame and shame has the dis despair in it. I, I wrote a book that was a secular argument against suicide that stay, really showing that we have, a, have some human arguments against suicide that could at least slow people down. I, atheists are always worried that I'm taking the religious position or I'm not at all. Uh, I'm not talking about end of life decisions at all. I'm just, I'm talking about if you're all alone and not one other person believes that you've been through enough terribleness to go, wait until you get one person to agree with you or wait until the morning or wait until you sober up. There are good arguments to tell you to wait. And if you install them in your head before you have that crisis, your worst mood won't kill all your others. And that's something to plan for. And there really wasn't anything for non-believers. And there really wasn't anything for believers anymore either, because a lot of the suicide letters say, God will understand these days. So we really need to talk about how to keep each other alive through love and community. And that was one of the things that that was so clear from the research. What drove people to suicide was not depression as much as short-term despair, short-term shame. So losing a job, within three months of losing a job, losing a major relationship through death or a breakup, these things throw us into a feeling that we cannot live through it. And that tends to last about three months. And if you can get through the three months, you bounce back. But in general, people who attempt suicide don't attempt it again and complete. It's a tiny proportion. If you look in the other direction and say the people who complete, did they ever try before? Yeah, you're going to find a yes. But if you look in, in the direction of how many... So the point is, I'm sorry, I got away from the subject, but just to say that when I started to look at the at shame and ask myself, how could I deal with it in this book? When I realized that the poem I was going to use was Shakespeare's, it, everything settled for me. I knew that I had a poem that was good enough that if we slowed down and look at it, it could hold all our self-hatred and make us laugh at it a little bit and let us Notice that both love and noticing how many other people go through the same thing. So if Shakespeare could feel so bad about himself, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I alone beweep my outcast state. He feels terrible. <laughs> and it's Shakespeare. Who in the history of time should feel good about how much work they've done that day? Then Shakespeare. 
He had to know how good he was, at least a little. And here we are all beating ourselves up. And when you see that at the end of that poem, he says, happily, accidentally, I think on thee, and then my heart, like a lock unto the break of day, arising, sings hymns at heaven's gate, for thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that I would scorn to change my state with kings. And I think we all have a love in our lives that if we really said, this person dead or and you're king, or this person alive and you stay in this life where you're just another schmuck, most of us would say, I got to keep that person. Most of us would say, I can't be a king. All I do is mourn this person, right? We have somebody in our life we feel that strongly about. And boy, shakes that little 14 line sonnet. Uh, once you spend enough time with it to know what it's saying can really relieve it. It saved me many times. So you might say that you're on a poetic protection mission. I'm on a po poetic protection mission, yes. I feel that poets, you're absolutely right, and that poet poets know that poetry protects them. That's the thing that I'm trying to do with this book, that poets all already have these poems. They didn't mean it. They didn't set aside a poem for grief. They just read Auden's Stop All the Clocks and cried and knew in their heart whenever they felt grief, that poem came to them. I'm not saying they knew the whole poem by heart, but they knew the poem and it came to them in some words, some lines, and then they have a, they know, they go read that poem. Poems come to me unbidden. So do songs. If I'm looking for my keys, the songs come to me that are, where is it songs? Uh, <laughs> my brain gives me, okay, but I've met many poets who also have this experience that when they're down in a certain way, the poem that's perfect for that comes to their mind. And I thought, how can I give this to people who don't want to read a thousand poems so that the very best ones bubble to the top and have lodged themselves in their minds and hearts. Why not just show these people, show people who don't read a lot of poetry that all you really need to do is go to the best poems and choose one. It doesn't even have to be very much on theme because all the poems are on theme. They're going to give you a quiet moment when you read it. They're all about life and death. They're all about time and change. They're all about loss and they're all about love. And you can find one that's, as, that's much more specific to a certain need. As I say, poets do. It's strange sometimes, the poem that comes to my mind, I can't even figure out why it's come to my mind, but then I'll read it and think about it for a while and eventually figure it out. Yeah, it seemed like a, like a gift that poetry has given me, and I am trying to pass it on to people who aren't studying constantly the whole poetic canon. Let's talk about your section on decision-making. Uh, you point out that even if you don't believe in a personal God to pray for good things to happen to you, even so, contemplative practices can still help to clear the mind, soothe anxiety, and prepare the way for a good decision, or at least provide greater equanimity about the outcome of a decision. You quote a poem by, called Caminante by Spanish poet Antonio Machado. So I was wondering if you could read that for us. Oh, I'd be delighted. Traveler, there is no road. Traveler, your footprints are the only road and nothing else. Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. As you walk, you make the road. And turning to look back, you see a path that will never be traveled again. Traveler, 
there is no path, only a foam trail on the sea. So when I read that poem in your book, I thought, gosh, I, I want to reply to this poem. And I, I'm, I'm not a regular poet, but I do write a little bit of poetry. And I have to say that your books really gave me some courage to, to write some poetry and, and realize that, I, that not all poetry has to be deeply personal. It could be about the human condition. And that was a real freeing thing. And I think maybe I'll write more as a result. So I thank you for that inspiration. How great. So my poem goes like this. It's a direct takeoff. Traveler, the footprints on this road are only visible to the mind's eye. Traveler, this path needs to be forged anew, as if you are the trailblazer. You've heard the warnings about the dangers and the assurances about the rewards. You and your forebears can share the credit. Beautiful. I love that. And yeah, it in many ways echoes the sort of Zen response to life that Machado has. But your ending is beautifully, it returns us to to history in a way, to the fact that in fact, people do travel each other's roads and certainly your forebears, certainly we should know by now that the path we travel will affect p- people in the future and they will look back and know that we either fossil fueled them into <laughs> oblivion or didn't and they will know our path. So I, I like that a lot, certainly for human living, the fact that we borrow from each other, nothing could be more profound and important. Um, This poem is that kind of Zen poem, and he loved Buddhism. So it's it's not at all ahistoric to speak of this poem as following that kind of idea that we think we're on a road, that we think we might be on the wrong road, that we think the road is in charge. And so we could be wrong. And that if we are on the road, we must be right. Those things, when you start to think about, okay, take the road away. How does everyone feel about what they're doing and where they're walking? Would you run off towards the east instead of walking south if we took the the road away? So it's, I like the way your poem adds to it the the familial reality because we get so much from each other. And Zen really is, in general, not, it does not take its power from interrelationships or family at all. It takes its power from uh, looking at the self and dissolving it. So let's talk now about gratitude, a dimension of life well covered by both prayer and by poetry. In particular, you invoke the form of the list poem, which strings together various items in nature and in human experience to be grateful for without worrying about how or even whether they connect with one another. The message it would seem is to simply pay attention and notice the beauty and wonder of each individual experience. And I found that a really interesting uh, kind of insight. I never really have appreciated list poems that much before, but I think looking at it that way is helpful. Because I've listened to it and this is just a list, <laughs> list of unrelated items. Why are they there? But there's a kind of hypnotic quality. Exactly. There's a hypnotic quality. Also, as you say, the things can be random to each other, but what usually happens in a list poem, in great list poems, I think that the poet stays on a topic for a little while and shapes some kind of something that you could understand as part of their life or part of everyone's life. And then then gets random again. And the lists can be very random for parts. Part of the beauty of that is that you start to see some relationship between the things. Many things 
are perfectly ordinary on their own. Red roses are just beautiful and many roses are red. But if you mention a bunch of red things, one does start to think of violence or a certain kind of danger. And so uh, that's how a list poem can do a lot of different kinds of jobs. But I, I think it's very interesting to think of it as a this isn't in the book exactly, but to think of it as an excellent poem for people who don't write a lot of poetry to give a try to, because it can be just a list of things you're grateful for. And the weirder the list, the better. If you think of things that you think something majestic and human, some great relationship with your mother, and then the next thing is strawberry jam, it, the way that things that are juxtaposed can create some sparks and new meaning, makes list poems a, a really rich place to go. But you're right, when they don't work, or sometimes in a certain kind of place in them, you say, what's going on here? Why is this, yeah. It's in a way embracing the scatteredness of the human mind. Like our human minds are not all that logically connected. You don't have to be dreaming at night to have uh, weird juxtapositions. But if you have a kind of topic that you're trying, if you're trying to describe your feelings towards someone or towards aging, okay, you can open yourself up and just say, I'm going to write down anything that comes to mind with just the intention being this topic. And you can be very surprised at what comes out sometimes. It, it gives your subconscious a way to speak to you. Think about it. Like, how do we hear from the part of our brain that's hidden. We hear from it, it, it by surprise in different ways, Freudian slips, different ways we figure out, oh, that's what I want. I have many times read a poem that I wrote years ago and suddenly realized that it was about something specific, a specific relationship where you just didn't know what you were saying when you wrote it. Then you have a section on weddings and I, I loved your recapturing of a memory of your own wedding in which you stood on a dictionary because of the vast differences between your height and your husband's. That's right. I have it here if you'd like to hear. Sure. I was married while standing on a huge dictionary. At six feet five, my husband is an inch taller than Lincoln was, and I'm five feet three. John and I are word people, books and puzzles. So a massive OED was a nice way for us to see each other without neck strain, but it meant more than that. The role of wife was worrisome for me in the eyes of society, as my work as a scholar and writer seemed under natural threat by the condition. So we literally hoisted me up on words. And so it's, it's so hilarious, really. Was everybody laughing? Was everybody laughing at the wedding? Did everybody know? Yes, we let them know that I was on the dictionary. We said if anybody's noticing something. But it really was. The first thought was just, I, I, he's really up here. And I knew that it would be hard. We'd, he, he'd be leaning down, I'd be leaning up. <laughs> so the idea that we should hoist, that we should put me on a platform was already, but the uh, idea, oh yes, let's make it words. Probably we came up with the dictionary first and then I noticed the symbolic beauty of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's even better. <laughs> to be surprised by your own symbolism. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's what I suggest to people because weddings in particular, I feel are a time where you can you can let your mom have some of the things she likes. It's a it's a family thing, a wedding. And I happen to be a, an unbeliever who doesn't who isn't scared of rituals or symbols. I'm such an unbeliever that they have no power over me. There are certainly ones that 
would make me itch more than others, right? Because I grew up near them, but still the rituals that, that make people feel that something has happened, that you are married now. You want everyone to get that. So you can give them some things, but like the dictionary and like a little poem that you say on your own or to others, you can put something in that wedding that gives you joy. And that is your, your way of honoring the things that you love. I'd like to hear about your hear your poem about birth, welcoming the baby into the world. Ah, yes. I was encouraging in this chapter, I was encouraging people to write their own welcome to a baby because I think that we all have some things that we love, uh, raspberries, sunsets, and you can simply say, welcome to raspberries and sunsets. I think there's an almost... Uh, natural desire to say such things. I hear people at such celebrations trying to list the beauty of the world to the child. So I made this and I'll read the little intro. You can opt for an interfaithless version of your family's baby welcoming party using the same timing, same food, same music, but no priest. Ask key people in advance to hold the baby during a recitation or ritual. If you want, create a climactic moment with the crowd coached to respond, welcome to the world, or to draw out the gooey goodness of that last one, write a few lines of welcome, listing a few things that you think they might like. Here, I'll take a crack at it. My darling, oh, welcome to the world. Welcome to the strange and endangered world. Welcome to its sweet mother's milk and its weird sleeping dreams. Welcome to its mangoes and apples, to its bread. Welcome to you, sweet child. Welcome to a universe already expanding, to red oleander, to oranges, to yellow stars, to pale green leaves just born in spring. Welcome to blue lakes rimmed with violets. Welcome to the story of the Big Bang and whence it flew. Who knew all along we were waiting for you? That's beautiful. Thank you. It's really beautiful. And so that's the kind of thing you would save and that the child would read when they grow up. That's right. Yeah. And it matters. You, you hear people talk about the little things that they got. Nobody, no, no mother really fills in the entire baby book, but those few precious pages they fill out in the very beginning, we all look at with a certain great love. And you're right. If someone were to write their own, they would keep it or even be handed the one that was read from someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's shift now to talk about the darker side of life. Because so far we've been talking more about the, the brighter side and the celebratory side. So you quote the Polish poet Wisława Zimborska, who captures the fear and relief of near catastrophe with her poem, Could Have. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last, alone, with others, on the right, the left, because it was raining, because of the shade, because the day was sunny. You were in luck, there was a forest. You were in luck, there were no trees. You were in luck, a rake, a hook, a beam, a break, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. You were in luck, just then a straw went floating by. As a result, because, 
Although, despite, what would have happened if a hand, a foot, within an, in an inch, a hair's breadth from an unfortunate coincidence? You're here? Still dizzy from another dodge? Close shave? Reprieve? One hole in the net and you slip through? I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen how your heart pounds inside me. That's beautiful reading. My my darling husband got cancer last year. We just we'd found out about it this time last year and praise science and the doctors and those wonderful nurses. He's a hundred percent cured. Hearing this poem, it really it, it was moving because of that. We escaped. It was scary. Oh boy, was it scary. And we escaped. Yeah. And that sense, listen how your heart pounds inside me. When she says so you're here, still dizzy from another dodge? She's talking to herself in a way. She's saying to all of us, she's saying for all of us, the way we look into ourselves and say, my God, I, I thought that was it. Every once in a while, something happens and you think maybe you're really, maybe it's really the end. And those who are here to talk about it are here to talk about it and surprised we may be. And then you talk about, about depression from fear to despair, you really cover all, all the bases. And you write, if you were raised in a religion that has things to do for depression, I'd say, don't let disbelief stop you from any such gestures that appeal to you. If you miss prayer, but you don't like talking to nobody, you might try talking to your future self. Tell that bastard what you were going, to, going <laughs> through for them. Thank your past self for riding the becond or raucous sea of time it took to get you to today. I love that, writing to your future self. And that sounds very powerful and it gives you something to look forward to in the future. And you, I have to tell you, it's one of the most powerful things for, my, for me that I've made up, this idea that I, that I can be in conversation with both my past self and my future self, to be aware that my past self had moments that she didn't want to get through. And I'm certainly glad she got through them. And the idea that, I know things that my past self didn't know that aren't the kind of thing that you can necessarily pass on. You just have to go through some things. And that means that I'll go through some more things and my future self will be the one to deal with some of the things that I don't know how to deal with. That when I look to the future and say, how am I going to do that? I'll be more grown up. <laughs> we can rest on that. And it also speaks to the kind of suicide prevention techniques we were talking about earlier, that if you write to your future self, you're already invoking a future. That's right. That, yeah, that's exactly right. And that you're reminding yourself that this is a moment that was, is not going to last. That, that's that, right. That your life like will change, that. your inside experience will change, something will change, something will shift because things always do. That's right. I, I think that's really good. Yeah. The, that's, the, the anti-suicide stuff is where the future self idea came in from because it's such a powerful intervention to to be in a relationship with a version of yourself that that knows better but yeah what, what you said was perfect too it's it does a lot of different kinds of jobs uh, but invoking the future knowing talking about the future it's, it's what you do when if you have somebody in your life who you care about and who you know is suicidal you get them on meds but while you're waiting for them to work you call them every day and you say i'll call you tomorrow that can keep a person alive, just knowing they're getting a phone call tomorrow, even if it's just, hi, how you doing? Okay, call you tomorrow. And that future self idea, you can do it by yourself. You, you really are always in conversation with your different selves. But if you make it more 
explicit, it's more of a friendship and, and it's a friendship with somebody who knows more than you do. Yeah, it's a little bit like Heraclitus. You can't step into the same river twice. You, you can't take a picture of the same self twice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. Every selfie is new, a new self. Every self. Always moving, always changing. Yeah. And that's one of the other reasons that holidays and rituals are so important because, you know, there's something stable in a world that looks stable, but every day changes a tiny bit. And so you don't realize how much older your siblings are because throughout the year, because you see them all year. But when you take those holiday pictures, you're reminded of the last time you did it. And when you look in the picture, you see the gray. The idea of doing the same thing once a year it not only cheers up the year, which it does terrifically, giving us new things to decorate and think about and talk about and respond to and even be mad at, but it also, holidays and rituals also give us a moment to compare where we are, how far we've come, who we are, where we are in our lives. Otherwise it slips by and you don't really notice. So we're, I think, up to talking about death. It's, you don't shy away from that either, not by a long shot. It's really one of the main questions that somebody from the West, because in the East, they're trying to get out of life, not stay in it. Nirvana is finally being able to exit from all this re rebirth. So it's only the West that longs for life everlasting. But when you come out of, even though Jews don't talk about it very much still, if you're educated and live in the, the Western world, you have this, this idea from Christianity of heaven. That is, Jews made up the idea, but we never thought of it as a place and everybody was going to go there. And it, it just is much more for Jews, unless you specifically reject God out loud, you are going to be one of the sort of mass of Jewish souls and indistinct. You're not going to be you anymore, but you'll live on in this kind of way. And so we don't talk about it much. It's not that much of a thing. It just papers over death just a little bit and then says, look at other things. And we do. Christianity thinks about death more than almost any other religion, certainly thinks about getting away from death more than any other religion. And what it says is it's not there. Death doesn't happen. You just step into a new world. The fact that our idea was that you step into a world made it so that when we said, oh, that world doesn't exist, we got the feeling that you step into a hole, you step into an abyss. There is no abyss there. If you stop thinking about heaven, heaven is like a, a bright light in your eyes and our worry about the afterlife is really just that afterglow. If you don't think about heaven, if you just think about how human beings other than Christians, have dealt with the fact that life ends. It's usually much more about a certain kind of transition than denying that death has happened to the person. That's a very Christian and unusual in religions thing to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it? I think most Americans would think that the fear of death is universal. And you're saying maybe it's not. And, and of course, a big challenge as an American to come up with a way for secular thought to grapple with death that's as comforting as Christianity seems to be for a lot of people. But the thing about Christianity's idea is it sometimes only works when you need it the least. People talk to me and tell me things, partially because of what I do for a living. But when I'm at funerals, I, I have heard many 
religious people, the wife of the deceased, say, I wish people would stop saying he's in a better place now. I want him here. I don't believe. They make it clear that at that moment, heaven is no peace to them. It becomes peaceful. It becomes useful to them. Maybe six months later, they see a leaf fall and they get a shiver and they feel that connection that they used to feel to the person and they get an experience. And that happens to unbelievers as much as to believers. You have that experience that somehow the world is holding your person still. I believe it is. I believe each of us knowing each other, even briefly, we put each other in our hearts. And when we know each other very well, we really learn them. We learn them in our hearts, like subconsciously, deep subconsciously. And so it's only when they pass away that they suddenly come alive to our hearts and start talking to us. Suddenly they're more available to us than they ever were. They're in our heads. Now you're not going to get any new behavior out of them and you're going to miss spending physical time with them. But it is a real thing that there's something, I, I think I call it a humanist ghost. There is a real thing of the feeling of a continued relationship with someone after they pass away. And it's not, it's not supernatural necessarily. And it's not nonsense that your brain really has learned the other person and is reminding you what they would say in this situation. It's the emotional equivalent of phantom limb. That's exactly right. That's beautiful. I like that. I'm, I'm going to use mm. that. <laughs> <laughs> So you give some very straightforward advice about choosing a funeral poem. And I'm wondering if we could go through maybe each one. First, help us know the dead or dead by saying the word dead. Didn't see the body? It may help to hear the words. So that, that's really interesting. In order to grieve, you have to really admit to oneself that the person actually is dead and that they're not coming back. Yeah. It's amazing how the mind won't let you know that information unless you do something a little bit uh, strong to, to show it. I've heard people say that they can't believe that their loved one is dead, but they remember the funeral, so they must be. And I've also heard from people who didn't do a funeral. Nowadays, funerals are very much on the decline. It's an extraordinary social change because cremation is so much cheaper and easier in many different ways. And people just say, well, I'll have a celebration later when I'm feeling up to it. And it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't because one would think that the, the funeral is, is supposed to, at its best, to f facilitate grief. And if you, if you wait too long, you may w miss that window in a sense. I agree. I agree. I think everybody has to do things for different reasons. So I, I try to spell out some of the best qualities of different kinds of situations. But there is something good about the memorial service that can be held at any time. And you can plan it more. But you're absolutely right that my main point in that chapter is to say, that there really is a point to funerals. People often say, I don't believe in an afterlife. And so it can't matter to Jim that he passed away and I didn't go to his funeral. There's another reason to go other than even supporting of the other people. It's, it's for your own psyche to really take in the fact that this person is gone and it helps. And it's a touchstone that you can go back to in your mind and say, yes, they're gone. Remember the funeral. It really does work that way. Yeah, then the second piece of advice is to give voice to rage, praise, and sorrow with high drama we may shrink from in our own words. So another kind of permission to grieve in all its um, magnitude and, and variety.
Yeah, exactly. I don't know if your listeners will remember the wonderful movie Four Weddings and a Funeral, but there's a funeral in it. And the bereaved lover reads Auden's, the poem I mentioned earlier, Auden's Stop All the Clocks. And that's what the poem says, stop all the clocks. He wants everything to stop because we all know that when we're in grief, it seems horrible that the rest of life just keeps going on. Daffodils keep pushing up from the ground and people are smiling and greeting each other. And you want the world to stop because your world has stopped. And so stop all the clocks, this extraordinary thing. Now, you may have lost someone who's important to you, but who you wouldn't have written this poem for. You wouldn't have written this poem for because of the intensity of it. Maybe you don't actually feel that level of an intensity. It's a short, gorgeous poem, but it's strong. But if you read this poem, it's not you making these things up. The poem is saying it for you and it allows you, it gives you room to have the full grief, to, to really embody everything you have, to even go over the lines and experience what you're going through so you can feel your feelings and move on. And then number three, frame a future relationship with the lost beloved, present in nature and in our hearts. So on the one hand, you have to accept the person's dead, but that doesn't mean you've lost all relationship with the person. It's different, of course. It's lacking some of the reciprocity that it used to have, but there's still a relationship. Yeah. And we can enhance that relationship by, for instance, as soon as one is capable of doing it, writing down some of the things that that this person loved and did, their hobbies, their traits. And and into the future, if they liked ice skating, you could say, through missing them, I'm going to go ice skating. And sure, you may have to hold on to the rail, but you're actually doing something with them. And there's something new in your life that's still about them. That can be very, it, it can add a little extra something when you need it. And then the last one is remind us that the dead are no longer suffering, which I guess is a reply to, uh, or an alternative to they're in a better place. And that, that one I think probably works quite well if, if someone is, has been sick and suffering for a long time. If they're young, not so much. That's absolutely right. Yeah. With a young person who, yeah, especially if it was completely out of the blue, with a young person, you can can really feel the weight of the grief that, that that is not there. But the important part about thinking in terms of the person not suffering is also just that when we grieve, we feel bad for the person. But the person isn't in the clouds looking down and seeing that she got hit by a car and, and crying. I would feel terrible if she were, but she's not. So we have to remind ourselves the person's death isn't a point of suffering for them because they're not here. And so we can suffer and we can see that we're suffering, but feeling bad for them doesn't really make sense. I, I get it, of course. It's hard not to feel that somebody lost time and feel bad for them, but it's good to keep in mind that they're not having that experience. Yeah. So I'd like to end with a, a quote by the Persian poet Rumi. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I love that.
Yeah, so beautiful. Many people know it from Leonard Cohen borrowed it. And of course, it took off with him too, because it is the most beautiful sentiment I feel you could get to. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And it's so concise. <laughs> I know. He was amazing. He was amazing. Yeah. Jennifer Michael Hector, thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Poet and historian, teacher and public speaker, author of many books about uh, doubt and about atheism and about happiness. And her most recent book, The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives, published last year. Thank you so much. Thanks. I had a really great time. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.